an amazing season of parenting teenagers. Um, I, I'm a pastor at the Nairobi Chapel. I uh, actually work in the central office. So when she, uh, Pastor Shebi says this is um, his boss, I really am his boss. <laughs> um, but Patrick is a businessman, and everyone keeps getting confused. So who's a pastor? Why is he the pastor, not the pastor? So he's going to talk about himself in that way. But he is in real estate, and it's really been an interesting balance, trying to balance in our lives marketplace ministry and um, full-time church ministry. Um, but how many of you here are single people? Not married yet or never. Singles? There's no single person here. Single? Okay. Single, but about not to be single. Single dating, single by choice. Okay, all that good stuff. What we are going to share today are principles that are just not for people who are married. They're actually financial principles that are biblical principles from scripture, the truth about what God talks about in scripture. But we were talking about. Um, finances in the context of marriage because that's what applies to us. But we know that some of these principles will translate to you as a single in waiting, a single who is about to get married, a single forever, etc. Because, like I said, they are godly principles and are the things we are hoping that you can take with you in whatever season of life that you're ready. Okay, so we're going to talk about money and marriage, but as Peter said, a lot of the principles we'll talk about can be used even if you're single. Now, certain research done in 2015 showed that most couples, about 67% of the couples that are married are anxious about money. Money is a big issue for them. 80% of those that are divorced actually put money in the top three issues that cause a divorce. So money is a big issue in marriage in many situations. Now, when we got married or when we get married, a lot of times uh, we come into the marriage with different money personalities, different issues we have uh, that we've grown up with. Um, earlier, someone talked about, the presenter was talking about what are some of the issues you had your parents speaking? What are some of the things you had your mom say? And a lot of times we used to hear there's no money, there's no money. So we come into the relationship with different money personalities. Faith will try and explain to us some of the different money personalities that we have. It is actually said that there's five different money personalities, okay? Now, just as a, as a really funny joke, when Africans are passing on money to each other, so you've met your, someone on the street, perhaps they have told you a story, or you feel like you want to bless them, or they're paying back a debt that they have, and you have money in your hands, how do we usually pass money to each other? Just pass money to somebody next to you. Just, just pretend you're passing money. See, look at this. It always, it always falls dead. You hide it. It's always hide. You don't even know if they gave you the money they are saying that they gave you. They say this is a thousand, but it's been folded six thousand times in a little thing, and then it's like this. And then we never ever count money in public. What do you do when you get the money? You quickly put it somewhere in your pocket and hope that that one thousand shillings they've said they've given you is the real thousand shillings. What happens when you go and find out it's 500 bob and not 1,000? How do you struggle with trying to figure out how to tell them? Because um, we have such a big identity crisis when it comes to money. Either it's a personality thing, it's a cultural thing, it's how we were raised, etc. But it is said there's five ways that we deal with money, even from a personality standpoint. The first is this, is that you are an amassa. Amassing means what? 
collect money. And not necessarily hoarding. You're a master because you're happiest when you see that you just have money sitting somewhere. Okay? You want money, a lot of money at your disposal to spend, to save, to invest. You tend to equate money or the presence of money with self-worth, with power. And so the lack of money always leads to feeling that you have failed. As an Amasa, you want to even make sure that you have money because it elevates your sense of feeling worthwhile, feeling powerful, feeling you've accomplished a lot, feeling good about yourself. And when money is not there, there's a deep sense of failure and negative feelings comes they come to being. And you probably enjoy making your own financial decisions so that giving up money means you're giving up control. And you obsess about money. You're like, how much is this? How much is there? What is going out? What can I give? What can I not give? I'm being asked to tithe. Why 10%? Why can't it be 9.5? Um, why, why is it tithing every uh, Sunday? Can it be tithing once a year? And so you obsess about money when you're on a massa. And even the idea of trusting somebody to help you balance your checkbook or your money is a place of feeling very nervous. So that's what an amasa is. You have a, 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 a weird dynamic when it comes to money. Now the second money personality is an avoider. An avoider is somebody who just has a very hard time balancing their checkbook. They have a hard time knowing where their money is, paying their bills promptly, they always need to do their taxes last minute because they have avoided and avoided to know how much they have in their account. It's just easier not to know what is in there um, than to deal with my money, okay? Now, I don't know how many of you are avoiders because what fuels avoidance is that you feel incompetent and overwhelmed when it comes to financial things. Generally, math is not your big strength as an avoider. And so you want others to deal with the money issues for you. You almost feel like money is, is a, not a godly thing. And so you dismiss everything when it comes to money, except when now it becomes a crisis. Most avoiders always seem to be in money crisis. Somehow, uh, I need somebody to bail me out because I avoided knowing what is in my account. I avoided knowing what my bills are. I've avoided and avoided and avoided and avoided. And then one day it comes to bite me and I'm like, okay, it's a crisis. What do I do? The third money personality is a hoarder. And a hoarder is a little different from an amasa because a hoarder just likes to save for saving's sake. Their one financial goal is just let's save. Let's just save so that we can save, so that you can save. And when you ask them, what are we saving? What are you saving for? Um, they're save, they're, they say they're saving because they're saving. And so a hoarder just has a very hard time even coming up with a budget because coming up with a budget means I have to spend. Okay, spending is a crisis for them. And they just have a very hard time buying clothes for themselves, watch out for even somebody else. They have a very hard time imagining that we are going on a holiday, so we have to say, uh, spend money. They have a hard time spending money on other people, leave alone on themselves. And so hoarders just have a very unhealthy relationship with money. And so they hoard, and they hoard, and they hoard. The fourth personality type are called money monks. Money monks just generally think they think money is dirty. Money is not godly, it's from the devil. Resist him and resist money. 
And generally, if you view their relationships, they hang around people of modest means. When they are with people who seem to be wealthy and who spend money, they struggle with that because it doesn't seem to be a godly thing to do. And so they get very anxious. When they receive any amount of money, whether through inheritance or somehow they got a bonus at work, it throws them off. Because they, they think, okay, now I need to deal with this extra money that I have come what I, I have come to come in touch with. What does that mean for me? And so they get very uncomfortable with money. And one of their biggest things is to give it away. Social investment, those who want it, those who don't need, um, who need it. So it's always about giving so that if I keep it for myself, I get nervous about it. Because what, what does it mean if God sees me with all this money? And so money monks just have a different kind of relationship with money. It is not clean. It is not the right thing to keep around you. Just let it go as much as you're able to. And then there is the spender. Just turn around and see that is the person that is sitting next to you. Okay? Those are the people who just love to spend it. If it's in their account, it's too much, it's time to release it. And generally, most spenders, unlike the money monks, don't necessarily want to spend it on other people. It's about my joy, my things, my food, my clothes, my shoes. And spending seems your one financial goal. It's all about spending. And so they have a hard time with budgeting. They have a hard time with saving. They have a hard time with holding back. Because if it's in your account, it is there for you to spend. And so most spenders end up getting into debt. And if it's in an income that they have, it's always insufficient for all the expenses that they have. Now, can you imagine a spender marrying a hoarder? Or a money monk marrying a spender? Or um, an amasser marrying an avoider? Okay? It really lends, particularly in relationships, to a lot of crisis. And reason why they say that money, finances, is actually one of the top three reasons, actually the main reason, why a lot of couples and a lot of marriages end up being in crisis. Now, money is a major, sorry, money is a major source of conflict in many families. Um, and as Faith said, it's probably the biggest source of conflict in most families. You'll find many times in families, people tend to forgive infidelity, but will never forgive when you get rid of all the money, when you make them go broke. A lot of times, it's a big source of conflict. And when you come into a marriage with different money personalities, you tend to have a lot of conflict if you're unable to communicate and agree on how you're going to deal with it. In our marriage, when we first came in, I was an amassa and Faith was a spender. So we did have that conflict. <laughs> You're surprised, I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had that conflict. We had to come to a place where we communicated. Mm. And so uh, with time, actually, Faith has really changed. She's actually become a saver. She's actually become a much better saver than I am. So we've actually kind of morphed. And um, I was kind of somewhere in between an amasa and a hoarder. Um, I got a lot of my identity from creating wealth and having the wealth and feeling that that gave me a sense of identity, but I didn't want to spend and so I struggled with the whole thing of us spending money on things that I felt were not uh, necessary. Going on vacation or buying expensive things in the home, I struggled with those things. 
So uh, faith helped me in that. And so we both kind of helped each other and we both kind of morphed uh, to different areas where faith now has become the saver in the home. And she actually controls my spending quite a bit now. So that uh, is one of the things that happens in marriage. But one of the things that really helped us uh, as we got into marriage was premarital counseling. Because that helped us to discuss some of these issues. So we went for premarital counseling. And we had this mentor couple. And one of the things the mentor couple told us was finances is one of the huge things you guys are going to fight about. And I guess they could already see it in the way Faith and I were when we were dating. So they told us the best thing we could do for each other was before we got married, we needed to open up a joint account. And I struggled with that. I really, really struggled with that. But I eventually agreed to it. So that everything we earned would come into one account. And then we would have to budget and plan from that one account and spend from that one account. I think my struggle with it was that faith would now control what I spend my money on. She would now be able to see how I spend my money and be able to control that. And I think a lot of times as uh, couples, or as people coming from different areas, we struggle with being open about what we make. And we struggle with being open about how we spend our money. And that becomes a conflict area. So for us, that actually has helped us in our marriage in actually sorting out. It doesn't mean you won't have differences because we still disagree on money and the way we spend it. But at least you're able to sort out those issues at an early stage before things blow up and get really, really bad. Mm. So why do we have issues with marriage in relation, with money in relationships? And here, um, you know, I'm talking about even, you know, with a roommate or a, a sibling, but mainly with, um, in, a, in a marriage situation. Patrick has alluded a little bit to that, that the first thing that is, is, a, is huge is about trust. We were, I don't know about all of you, but most of us as women, if we were around mothers or aunties who gave us counsel, always told us you must have a secret account. How many got that information, like from a very uh, early time? You must have a secret account. And all that came out of what their relationships produced in terms of the conflict and control and, you know, the husbands that they were married to and etc. And coming away as a woman always feeling that I'm always being controlled and pushed at or against because of money. I don't have enough of it and this man will control me. And so all the aunties who gave me counsel and all the women around me seem to think that you must always have a, a secret account, secret, meaning I take his money and put it in this account, so that in case anything happens, I have a fallback plan in this secret account. What that ends up doing is creating deep mistrust that is always never going to go. Somehow in the back of my mind I know something will happen because I see it around me. All these guys are doing this, all these men are doing this, and I remember hearing a story one time, of a we had a story of a gentleman who built an amazing house out in Kisarian. Furnished it, put everything in it, and then took his wife as a surprise for their anniversary to this com fully complete furnished house. She packed her bags and left. Why? Her argument was, if you could spend money to build this thing and furnish it without my knowledge, what else are you spending our money on out there? Okay? So the issue of trust has always, always been one of the things that causes real holdback. And every time I'm counseling with, we are counseling with couples, we say, guys, you're trusting this person in the bedroom with every manner of thing in there. You're trusting them to, you know, come home. You're trusting them to produce children together. Why wouldn't you trust them with this aspect of your life? And part of it 
because trust is actually developed over time. And it's something that you must actively choose to deposit over and over and over again in your marriage. Otherwise, it will keep coming to haunt you. But the second one is this. As Africans, we have the fear of scarcity. We grow around us always literally hoarding or always fighting with poverty issues. We never have enough. Like all of us shared, our parents always say, Akuna pesa, akuna pesa, akuna pesa. And we had that so many times we believed it. Okay, I keep telling Patrick, it almost feels like you're calling a cast upon yourself. Because you say so many times, when is the time we'll say, hey, akuna pesa mingi. <laughs> and call that as a blessing. Lord, there's plentifulness in our home. Our storehouses are overflowing and overflowing. Call, show us a place where we can bless others. We almost never get into that place because as Africans, we keep thinking of all the spaces of lack that we grew up in. We see it around us. We're so fearful that that will become our portion one day as if we blink too long. And scarcity is a mentality we carry around with us. And we need to begin to break that stronghold, that is the enemy's stronghold. But the th third one is this, that because we are so indisciplined with money, I, I, Patrick and I went to the States for school, um, and we lived, I lived there for uh, 10 years, he met a little less. And I, the first thing I was such a shock was that in that culture, children begin to make money from a very young age. They do no newspaper rounds, at 13 you have a savings account, at 18 you already have a credit card, is it at 16? And so the interaction with money is very, very early. They, they, they know how to spend and save from a very early age. Most of us interacted with money when we first went to college because we were always being what like this, like this, like this, like this. It's not enough, it's not enough. And so when we start um, interacting with money as a, as a personal level, we almost always have tended to spend more than we make because it's a fast sign of independence. And so when we're in a marriage space and we are into and so spending more than we make becomes a crisis for us because one day we wake up and the um, loan sharks are at the door and we bought more than we had you know anticipated and we got into all this debt and it actually becomes a crisis for us but the fourth fifth reason why we tend um, we have a we, we go into these spaces and we have issues with money is that we accumulate, want to accumulate wealth so that we are never ever going to be in trouble. And we amass it and we grow it and we get into 66 projects. It amazes me how many side hustles Kenyans or Nairobians generally seem to have around. And part of that is in amassing money. There's always a chicken thing, then we're doing mitumba from I don't know where, then we're bringing things from Uganda, then we're doing, I mean, it just seems to be that's the thing we are constantly chasing and chasing and chasing out of all these places that we are coming to. And this is what King Solomon says about that sort of life choice when it comes to pursuing wealth. It, he says in Ecclesiastes 2, um, 4 to 10, in verse 11 he says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And whereas it's good to create wealth, when it becomes an obsession, the one thing I live for, the one thing that ends up becoming a legacy, then I have missed the mark. It becomes meaningless, a chasing after the wind. A wise person said, and he said it was anonymous, I haven't found the person who said this, that in marriage, don't fight, or in any relationship, don't fight about money. 
Because after you've said mean things to each other, the amount of money in the bank will still remain the same. Yep, it doesn't change. Um, now, we're going to look at five biblical principles. Uh, and this applies to you whether you're married or not. And we got these principles from the book of Proverbs. So the five principles of just managing your money, and this would help you whether single or not, also in terms of management of conflict within the home. The first principle is keeping track or keeping records. Try keeping records of everything you get. The income coming in and your expenditure going out. In Proverbs 27, 23, and 24, uh, King Solomon tells us, be sure to know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever. Riches will not last forever. Mm. So we need to understand what's coming in and what's going out. We need to keep a record of that, and it's extremely important. That time, in the time of King Solomon, he used the words of flocks or herds, because that's how they measured their wealth, mm. the number of animals you had. So he needed to keep track of how many animals gave birth, how many animals died, how many animals were sold, and that way he was able to keep track of how much wealth he had. And so this helps us in tracking what we're making and what we're losing, and where leakages are happening in the relationship or with our money issues. Another thing that King Solomon tells us in Proverbs 13, 16, is every prudent man acts out of knowledge. Keeping track of the money you're making and the money you're spending gives you knowledge. And the knowledge that it gives you are four main areas that are extremely important for you. What you owe in terms of the debts that you have, what you own in terms of the assets that you have, what you earn, how much money comes into you, uh, both your incomes and where that money is going. As a married couple, Faith and I, it's become extremely important for us to be very open with each other on how much money we're making and how much money we're spending and how we're spending that money. That has helped us to go into the next principle. So the next principle is planning. We need to plan ahead. So knowing and keeping track of what we're making and how we're spending it helps us then plan. And so the next principle that King Solomon tells us in Proverbs is to plan. And this comes from Proverbs 21.5, where King Solomon says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. If we don't plan, a lot of times people say we're planning to fail. So if we're not really planning how we're going to spend our money and how we're going to invest and how we're going to grow, then we're probably planning to fail. The problem, and a lot of times uh, people think financial freedom comes when I have a lot of money. It doesn't. Financial freedom actually comes from using what God has given you in the correct way. I may be earning just 10,000 shillings a month, and I may have the financial freedom because I'm able to spend it in the correct way. While someone else may be having a million shillings a month, but is constantly in debt because of what they spend. They probably spend more than they make. So financial freedom doesn't come from the amount of money that we make. It comes from how we use what God has given us to make money. Now the problem with many of us is that uh, 9 out of 10 of us uh, in a survey done actually spend a lot of times more. Uh, spend impulsively, sorry. We spend impulsively. We don't plan how we spend our money. So when I walk into a supermarket many times, I will spend impulsively instead of planning. And most of the time we should plan before we spend. So as I'm going into a supermarket, I should know I'm going to spend 3,000 shillings on these specific items today. 
as opposed to walking in and then just impulsively buying things. Because statistics actually show that when we go into that supermarket without planning, we actually spend way more than we should have spent. We buy things that we have not really planned to buy. And that is called impulsive uh, buying. In Proverbs 21.20, Solomon tells us, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food, oil, and oil. But a foolish man devours all that he has. So without planning, a lot of times we tend to spend way more than what we are earning. And we tend to get ourselves into a crisis. The third uh, principle, which comes from planning, is saving. We need in our plans to plan to save some of the income that comes in. And again, in Proverbs 6, 6 to 8, it tells us about the ant. Solomon speaks about the ant and what the ant does. And he says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at the harvest. King Solomon's basically saying the ant actually stores, and it stores for a rainy day. When we're saving many times, we probably are not saving for a specific reason, but we're saving for a rainy day. Actually, analysts normally tell us that we should save and have a saving that can keep us going for three months in case we lost everything, in case something happens. So for example, assume Faith and I are bringing in 10,000 shillings a month. We should try saving to the point where we have 30,000 shillings in the account. So in case both Faith and I lost our income, we can survive for three months without our lifestyle really changing. So we need to plan to save. And it's important to save uh, a certain amount of money that we take uh, home. In Luke 14, uh, 28 to 30, it says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost? That comes to planning, uh, to see if he has enough money to complete it. For he, if he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. So this comes into safe planning. So you plan, you sit down, you plan, if you're planning to build, and you save, you save towards it. The fourth principle that we learn about is eliminating debt. Uh, debt many times tends to make us a slave of the person we borrowed money from. And debt is not necessarily bad. It's not a bad thing if you plan for it and you use it well. Debt is good many times if debt is going to help us make income. Or if debt is going to give us an asset that we have, could not have bought without uh, borrowing. But debt becomes dangerous when we take debt for spending on things that are not necessary. So for example, if you're taking debt to buy a house or to build a house, that may be a good thing. But again, you also need to plan well so that you're not taking too much debt to build a house that you don't need. Because sometimes you may be thinking of building this huge, massive house to impress our friends and take a huge debt that puts us in trouble. Actually, a lot of times we should plan to take debt that we know if one of us lost our jobs, our income can actually, one person's income can help us pay that debt. So we need to eliminate debt. And in Proverbs 22.7, King Solomon tells us, the rich rule over the poor. The borrower is a servant of the lender. So debt can easily, easily put us in 
into a tight situation. And right now, we have a lot of apps that are giving us quick loans and very easy loans, but they're very expensive loans. For example, I take Fuliza a lot of times, and Fuliza is a very expensive uh, loan. But it causes us to spend on what we would not uh, otherwise spend. Like today in the morning, I was telling Faith, many times when I walk into the supermarket, if I spend, if I choose to use cash, what is in my wallet, I normally am very careful in calculating what I'm picking so that it's exactly what I have in my wallet or less. Because I don't want to get to the cashier and find that I don't have money, enough money. But a lot of times when I choose to use Fuliza, I then start picking things that I don't need. So I borrow. I'm borrowing from Safaricom to buy things in the supermarket that I don't need. Not knowing that this is a very expensive debt. And so what happens is when someone then sends me a test, I still have a zero balance because of Fuliza, <laughs> everything that I have in my phone. And so what happens is we tend to spend more when we borrow to buy things that are not necessary. So when we take those Tala loans or whatever to buy food in the house or to buy things that we don't need, a lot of times that becomes extremely expensive mm -hmm. and it makes us a slave to the person who has lent us the money. They're always chasing us, they're always calling us, and we don't pick up their phone calls because we have debt. So we're a slave to these people. The fifth one is to give habitually. Give habitually and give generously. Whatever income God has given us, uh, God demands that with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Here Solomon is talking about tithing. We are commanded to tithe. And why do we tithe? We tithe one as an act of obedience. It's an act of obedience to God. Because in Malachi 3.10, God actually tells us this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God does not need our money. God can get our money from it, can get the money for the house from anyone else. God can create money for the church from anywhere. But he's doing this to see how can we obey him. God has given us a lot. He's blessed us with a lot. And he's asking us just to give back 10% back to the church. And many times we struggle with that. I was one person who struggled with that, and faith has really helped me with that. I would struggle with giving my tithe all the time. I would give 5%, 6%, because I would feel, hey, this month is a bit tight. Uh, but God commands that we give a minimum. This is not a maximum. This is a minimum of 10% of what he's given us back to the church. So we're doing, we're tithing as an act of obedience. We also tithe as an act of gratitude. An act of just saying thank you to God for what he's done for us. God has given, Faith and I just say, God has given us way more than we could have asked or imagined. We would never have imagined God has taken us to where he's taken us. Mm. And so when we look at what God has done for us, we need to give back as an act of gratitude. Just saying thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. So we give as an act of gratitude. And we're commanded to give, okay, we're not commanded to give more than 10%, but we should give more than 10% of what we make. Because there are a lot of people out there, disadvantaged people, who require help. God requires us to go and give and help those people around us. So we should give more than 10%. We should also give as an act of priority or as an act of worship. Um, in Psalms 116, 12, it says, how can I repay the Lord for his goodness to me? You know? And in Exodus 23, it says, you shall have no other gods than me. So as an act of worship, we should give. You know, a friend of mine once told me, you worship what you fear most. 
if you fear disobeying God the most, you will worship him and you will give back to him. If you fear poverty the most, you will worship money. And you focus on making more money because we fear poverty the most. So we worship what we fear most. And God has asked us not to worship any other God but him. So we should fear uh, disobeying God more than anything else. And so we give because of that. We also give as an act of faith. Uh, many times when I struggled with tithing and as faith would speak to me, uh, one of the things I realized is I had not fully given myself, surrendered myself to God. I had not surrendered that area of my life to God. I had given my life to Christ, but I had not fully surrendered my finances to God. Not knowing that everything I had had come from God. And so many times I would hold back when I'm going through a tight financial situation because I felt I could trust God to provide. And so we tithe and we give back because we trust God. So if I'm in a difficult financial situation and God has given me 10,000 shillings, I still need to tithe even in that financial, difficult financial situation because I need to trust that God will provide for that extra money that I need. And many times we feel, oh, you know, God, right now the rent is due and you're asking me to tithe and I still have to make this other payment and I still have to make this other payment, but we need to trust God. We need to trust that God will provide. And God provides our needs. Not necessarily our wants. I will, may want this big TV in the house. And God may not provide for that because he knows that is not what I need. But he'll provide for me in terms of food and many other things that I need. So God provides our needs. So tithing is also an act of just saying, I trust you, God. I trust you to provide for me and to provide for my family. Now, every time you share these thoughts, the one question that always, always, always comes, always, is, okay, this thing of one account is just a little too much. Okay? I can hear you, ladies. I can hear you. <laughs> I can hear you. So, is there a practical way of going around it or processing it? How, what, how do we engage the one account situation in marriage? Okay. Now, one of the big things that uh, we struggle with, I guess, is trusting each other. And especially if one of you is earning more than the other, and you're saying, why are we putting everything into one account, and I'm not earning more than this person? And these days, a lot of times, women are earning more than us men. Huh? So, <laughs> so they struggle with that. Why should I put what I've earned uh, in the same account with this gentleman? But I think it comes down to one, trust, and two, just obedience to God. It doesn't mean you have to have one account. And I'm not saying necessarily you have to have one account. But you need to be very honest with each other about what you're making. And you need to come to an agreement on how you spend this money together. One of the ways you could do it is have three accounts. You could have one joint account where all the funds come in. And as you plan for them, then you could have what we call my spending money. So I don't want Faith to see what I spend. She doesn't want me to see what I, she spends. We could then remove that spending money and put into those two separate accounts where she spends her money without me questioning, and I spend mine without me questioning. But what's in the joint account is what we use together. Uh, and we need to be extremely open with each other. We shouldn't use this separate account to become our secret account for hiding money from each other. So when I make a little extra money, I put it into this secret account so that faith never knows how much I need. We need to be extremely honest with each other to put all the income initially into the first account, and then the separate account, if you're struggling to work with one account, the separate account for your spending money. 
one of the challenges that always happens is that people decide you pay these bills and I pay these bills. And then because you're doing two different worlds, when you're struggling with your bills, it's very hard to come back and say, okay, this is the reason why there's a struggle this month on rent or school fees or on, on that. And it feels like we are lending each other money. When in essence, everything that is an income for us as a couple is our money. When it stops becoming our money, our bills, our finances, our investment, then you're on a slippery slope to a lot of brokenness in your relationship. And so we keep pleading with couples who are coming to us, who are new, who are getting started. Guys, this financial thing is so serious because we know what it has done and has meant for us 20 years down the road. And if you do not have openness and trust, it will cost you. Down the road when you need to care of your mom, one mom against the other mom, or you know, when it's a school fee situation, when you know there's a loss of job, when there's an illness that's calling for us to you know do something very intense about with our finances, it then begins to rebound and become a really big issue in marriage. When there is conflict, the first place of hurting the other spouse is always financially. When I withhold, when I divert, when I am sick, have these secret things. And it's a one place I would keep pleading with anyone who is in a marriage situation, consider openness and transparency in marriage, even as you deepen the trust that God has desired for you as a couple in your marriage and with your union. And so it's a big call. It's a big place. It has served us well. And one of the places it keeps serving us is in the place of Patrick. He's, he's a business person. And so, of course, he doesn't have... Um, <clears throat> constant, uh, constant salary. And so maybe I can ask for him to share about how that has meant for us when, you know, he needs to have, do a big project, we are strained financially, we have this one account and some of those dynamics. Okay. Um, I'm a business person and I'm involved in real estate development. And so when we're doing big projects, developing big projects, a lot of times my cash flows go down. And I get into situations where I'm negative in terms of cash. Now, uh, what has really, really helped us in our relationship is having the joint account. Uh, because for one thing, when I'm really doing some of these projects and I don't have money, sometimes I don't even have money for fuel, to fuel my car. Because I'm trying to finish a project as soon as possible, uh, and then it begins to bring uh, money in. Uh, Faith and I having a joint account has helped because I don't get into that situation where I feel embarrassed to go and bet half the money. I need to fuel my car. All I need to do is go into our account, remove money, and fuel my car. Because I know Faith has a constant salary that comes in, so I know there's going to be some money that comes in, and I'm able to survive through the month. And this has happened, and we've been able to help each other. Actually, what I tell Faith is, uh, in life, we should never be arrogant, because God changes things for us. At the beginning of our marriage, a lot of times, I was the provider, and a lot of times, I felt I was the one bringing in the money. But... Because of the nature of my business, there were many times when I went, when the business would go down and I did not have cash. But the amazing thing is Faith never questioned uh, why I was withdrawing a certain amount of cash to keep the business going. And there are some times I had to pay my employees, so there are times I would go into that account, which is our joint account, and withdraw money to go pay my employees. Because at the end of the month has come and I don't have cash to pay my employees, and I have to pay them. But Faith wouldn't question that. But imagine if we had a separate account. I would have to go and beg Faith for money to pay my employees. I would have to go and beg Faith for money to fuel my car or to buy something small in the supermarket. But because we had this joint account, I would go and withdraw and then explain to her 
uh, today, I will do it with a large amount of money. I would explain to her that faith never questioned why I was doing those uh, huge withdrawals at certain points. Uh, because she trusted me. Because she trusted me in the relationship. And because we started on a good footing. We started on a footing of trust and one account. We actually had it. And to this day, all our accounts are joined. Any account we've opened has been joined. We've opened savings accounts, current accounts. Uh, Faith, a lot of times, has, has been the initiator of all those accounts. But they are all joined. I can access them at any time. Faith can access them at any time without us asking the other person, what are you uh, withdrawing that money for? So he's making me look like an angel. Like I, you know, it was all so nice. Except he's not sharing the heart attacks I used to get when there's zero, zero, like this in our account. And I'm like, what just happened? There was money in the morning. But it allowed for us then to come back in the evening and say, okay, what's, what's happening in the, at the business front? And have real conversations about the situation, cash flow situations. We have a big bill coming up, school fees is coming up. And those conversations are hard to happen if we are, our lives are not intertwined in that way. And so we've really appreciated those moments that allow us to regroup around our finances, to regroup about our budget, because I can tell you, for somebody who now, you know, I, I've been growing from being a spender to being almost an amassa, I'm not quite a hoarder yet. It, it has always been, you know, let's check on this box against our budget item for the year. Did we, do we need to go and down that road when it's not a budget item? And I can tell you, I have grown in the budgeting area. It was a very uncomfortable conversation for me in the first place. As a spender, you don't want to be asked why you're buying shoes again. I mean, really. And yet it had become a discipline that I have I've had to um, grow in because I saw just how beneficial it was when we began to save. When we actually had money in the account that was buffer money, money for a rainy day. But it was a conversation that I have had to grow in when we said, you know, let's sit down and work on a budget. When on our, one of our date nights is a budget date night, and it's a very uncomfortable situation because it means, it means I'm being vulnerable. Let's talk real about some of our financial situations. If it has something to do with our extended family, what is the extent of engagement and involvement financially? But it has meant that we have had to be real and open with those conversations. Now, our hope and prayer is that this will be meaningful. For you who are married, who are struggling um, with the whole situation of finances, for you who are single, who still need to apply God's principles when it comes to dealing with money and finances, the thought of giving generously, the idea of planning ahead, the idea of saving, all those are biblical principles that we are really, really hoping and praying would allow for God to speak into your life and to your situation and understanding that you're a steward. That the finances and the money and the wealth you have is not for you to spend it on yourself, but it is for you to bless others and to bless the kingdom because that is the reason that God has trusted you with that that He has given to you. A lot that we will pray together. Our Lord and our Father, we thank you that you're so gracious, enough to give us skill, knowledge, strength, energy, everything that you give to us abundantly that has allowed us to create wealth. To allow for riches and abundance to be our portion. We thank you for the truth of scripture that says that when you have allowed for us to have wealth, it doesn't come with sorrow. And so Lord, we ask that we would not be in sorrowful situations because of wealth when we have chosen to spend and splurge without wisdom or to not bless others 
or to not tithe as your word has asked for us to, that Lord, we would be wise stewards of the things and resources you have given to us, particularly when it comes to finances. We pray for the married couples in this room and ask for a deep sense of intimacy when it comes to finances, that Lord, you would allow for them to grow in trust with one another, you would allow the things that have been in the past of pain, of seeing others, things that have been spoken of their, over their lives that have turned to be negative in their marriage, Lord, those that Lord, you would resolve because your God are healer and restorer. We pray that you bless the work of our hands. And Father, you'd allow for us to walk in abundance, that we would speak blessings with our mouths over the resources you have given to us. Again, remembering that this is not for us, it is for blessing your kingdom and the people around us. So may it be that the words that we have shared today, Lord, would find fertile soil and they would find root and that they would bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray.